You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, good evening, as it is here now, and welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This episode is entitled... Show your stripes as common grace. And that's a combination of two ideas that I'll tease out in the podcast. It's um, it's something of a tired brain dump. And the reason that I say that is I've just recently come back from Canberra, which is Ngunnawal, Ngambri and Wiradjuri unceded land. That's Aboriginal land always was and always will be. And although I don't spend any time thinking well, I, I do talk a, a bit about that, but the thing that's in my mind is we, um, in in Canberra, which is also the capital of the lands we now call Australia, we went uh, as a group to the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, which celebrates or commemorates 50 years of the struggle for justice for Aboriginal peoples and, and that for Torres Strait Islander peoples as well in these lands now called Australia. And I was yeah really struck... Um, by the passion and you know the undercurrent of of anger, I think, as well as a welcoming to us um, in many ways, well, in all ways, I guess, an unmerited uh, welcome uh, that we received. So it's it, it comes out again and again, and reflections in the weekend that it's worth starting by thinking about that. But yeah, it's it was a full couple of days. Um, went up uh, Saturday afternoon and then a full Sunday and a full Monday. So what was the reason for, for all this tiredness? Well, it's um, it's been Show Your Stripes Day today, and I'm going to tease out what that means. And in particular, I was there involved with an amazing Christian advocacy group called Common Grace, which is ably led by our CEO, Waka Waka Woman, Brooke Prentice to say nothing of the awesome staff and the volunteers that make Common Grace what it is. But more of that in a moment. So firstly, what is Show Your Stripes Day? Well, it's the brainchild of Ed Hawkins. And I read on Wikipedia, I follow Ed on, on Twitter, by the way, but I read on Wikipedia that he's a British climate scientist at the University of Reading in the UK. Now, I spent a lovely few days at Reading in 2015, I was across there for a conference in uh, education and meteorology at the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting, and I walked from this um, the outskirts of the town. Well, I think it was the outskirts of town, but maybe near the CBD. I don't honestly remember precisely where it was placed, but from my hotel to uh, the ECMWF each day, and I walked past the University of Reading, but I didn't have the opportunity to go in, unfortunately. Maybe another time. Now, Ed, uh, it seems, loves visualising data. 
now I used to have a friend and a colleague when I was doing uh, my first postgraduate study, um, which was um, in theoretical astrophysics. It was meant to be a PhD, ended up being master's, long story. Um, kind of regret it, kind of don't. But anyway, Sue always used to say that science was all about pretty pictures. And I concur. Um, and that's not to hide the scientific value, but that's to bring it out uh, and to marvel in what is lying underneath. So Ed came up with the idea of showing the global mean temperature data as vertical stripes. And so these are the stripes that we show. So let me take you on a, a brief scientific journey through what that's all about. So firstly, you take a 30-year period. And for temperature data, uh, for climate change studies, it's usually 1961 to 1990. And I have no idea why it's that particular 30-year period. It doesn't really matter which 30-year period it is, but that's the one that's often used. Now, this period of 30 years means that you capture not just the year-to-year -year variability of temperatures, you know, some years are warmer than others, uh, but longer-term variability. So, for example, you might be familiar with the El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, which occurs in the Pacific Ocean, and it's a, a pattern of rising and falling temperatures in the oceans and uh, rising and falling pressures uh, measured across uh, both sides of the Pacific so it's a combined ocean atmosphere phenomena and it can uh, and the cycle is anywhere between about two and seven years it's aperiodic although that's changing it would seem potentially with climate change so el nino years are typically hotter on average globally and la nina years are cooler but then you have this phenomena known as the pacific decadal oscillation which is like enso but as the name suggests varies on time scales of decades and it modulates the enso so um in one phase, you get more El Ninos than the Ninos and vice versa. So having a 30-year period should allow you to capture some of that longer-term variability in your average. And then what you do is you take each year's temperature and you subtract this 30-year average. So what you have then are years that are warmer than this 30-year average and years that are cooler than this 30-year average. And what you, you do with um, the show your stripes is to bin that data. So you put it into little bins uh, of a certain width of temperature difference, plus or minus. And then you can assign each of those bins a, a color. So the blue shades are warmer than the average and the yellow and the red, burgundy, whatever color wall. I mean, when I saw the, the scarves that were made out of this, and I'll talk more about those in a minute, you um, get a bit of interpretation of different colors but nonetheless you get a pattern that emerges uh, the stripes and you can display those stripes as an image or in the case of um, what common grace was doing as a beautiful but disturbing scarf more of that shortly now there are three big centers that plot global average temperatures that you'll usually see if you go digging about the internet and and I always recommend that check your sources and make sure that it's a reliable and legitimate source and read what they have to say before you go to the skeptical sites, of which there are many, and they might carve up the data and do different things with them. But the three locations are the UK Met Office, uh, obviously in the UK, which Ed used, and then in the United States, you've got NASA, uh, the space agency, which is the data set that I used for the common grey scarves, and then you've got the National Oceanographic, uh, Oceanic sorry, and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Now, they use slightly different techniques to quality control the data, and so small differences will arise. 
However, it should be made very, very clear that they both have the same trends. That is, that they show um, the planet has been warming. They show the same ups and downs uh, due to natural variability. And they might differ slightly on which is the precisely the warmest year. The differences will be small. Um, but they'll agree in those wiggles, but they'll also agree in the upward trend. Now, it's interesting that there's a fourth... Actually, there are several data sets. So the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting, I think, produces a global uh, temperature plot as well. But there's there's a fourth in particular uh, that I think is a fascinating story and illustrates precisely why it is people like myself place so much confidence in this and will have stood up for years and years in, in front of church groups and so on, become involved in groups like Common Grace and tier and supported groups like Micra and all sorts of other activities, anything that basically I either get my hands on or groups that got their hands on me uh, uh, to talk about. So Richard Muller. Richard Muller is a physicist. And he, he used to be, if you'll forgive the phrase, the darling of the climate denialist set. And I use the term denialist very deliberately. By that, I mean people who are ideologically predisposed to ignore climate science. Why? Because, uh, to borrow a phrase from Al Gore, it's an inconvenient truth. Now, Richard had produced, I've never seen it actually, which I should probably try and find a copy. Richard had produced a graduate textbook on what is known as the Milankovitch cycles. Now, these are uh, variations in three aspects of the Earth's rotation and orbit around the Sun. Now, each of these um, wobbles, jiggles, whatever, have contributed to the rise and fall of the ice ages on the planet. And Muller and his daughter founded a private consultancy, and I'm pretty sure from memory that it was seed-funded, or funded at least initially, by the Charles Koch Foundation. And Charles Koch is one of um, two brothers who are wealthy industrialists. One of them passed away. I can't remember which one it was now. But they, they had or have a stake in climate change being shown to be false. Now, Richard and his team, including a Nobel Prize winning physicist, looked at all the issues with the data, how it is selected, including the evaluation of how much you can trust the quality, things like the urban heat island effect, which is how the increase in building height and density around a temperature site and the surface materials, you know, like the... Uh, bitumen to make up the roads and so on and what the, the buildings are made of, how they all affect the, the temperature measured in the cities over time. Then there's the data adjustment, uh, which is done because, say, for example, you, um, and this is a thing that's happened in Australia, for example, the temperature's been measured by the post office. So you get maximum and minimum temperature every day. And then you move to an automatic weather station at the airport and the airport's at a different elevation and a different exposure and so on. And you can actually, over time, if you track both of those, find a relationship and adjustment uh, between those two sites so that you can have a continuous record of high-quality temperature data. So that's the data adjustment effect. And so they looked at all of this in detail, obviously not trusting what had been done before, whether or not it had been correct. And when Muller and his team had finished, they found essentially the same thing of all the other groups, uh, that the planet was warming. They used uh, proxy data and went back even further than the original paper by Michael Mann, who came up with something known as the hockey stick, which went back through the Middle Ages. So they went back a lot further. 
uh, when they uh, and what they found, as I said, were, was that they matched what other groups had said that the planet was in fact warming. And when they looked at carbon dioxide emissions, they also found that it was an excellent match. And they also included dips in the sun's output, the sunspot cycle, and the effects of large volcanic eruptions and matched the temperature record very, very well. So I mention this uh, to you to stress one aspect of science that is often appealed to, and it's repeatability. Uh, this measurement has been done so many times now that climate science, the fundamentals, climate change science is beyond debate. It really should be. Uh, some see the stripes as political, and it's true that there are political implications of climate science, but data, specifically data interpreted, interpreted and visualised well, is bipartisan truth, or at least it should be. So last September then, I grabbed the NASA data, I binned it, as I talked about earlier, so each bin could be given a colour for knitting. I sent it off to Common Grace, and then I pretty much forgot about it. I got on with my masters and my work and um, dealing with COVID lockdown and all the things of life and just thought, well, they're going to do something neat with it. And I look forward to seeing what the result is and it probably won't involve me and that's all well and good. And that leads me into the next bit. I imagine a number of you already know who Common Grace is, but if you don't, let me tell you. It's a broad coalition, uh, coalition of Christians. And I, I, the figure's been bandied about a lot the weekend just gone, that there are 50,000 followers in Australia. And when I say followers, I mean supporters, people who um, read posts and um, are inspired by justice and so on. I don't mean followers in the kind of cult-like sense. I mean, we're just not that sort of movement, right? And I don't mean that in a political sense because um, Common Grace is not a quote-unquote political movement. Uh, it attempts to be apolitical, but of course, the issues that it concerns itself about um, are political. Uh, we are, I say we because I'm part of Common Grace, uh, people who are dedicated to pursuing Jesus and justice. In fact, I think in a climate of justice, or certainly in other contexts, I describe the um, climate, uh, uh, Common Grace's Jesus justice junkies, uh, because I like alliteration. Always avoid alliteration, so they say. Okay, sorry, bad joke. All right, where am I? So, you know, I've written a whole book about climate justice framed around the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was all about changing the human heart, but also it was the end goal of changing the entire world. Um, to pick up on the title uh, of a movement, another a movement or another uh, coalition of Christians and, a, and the subtitle of the book I wrote, uh, Christ Wants to Make All Things New. And yes, that starts with the human heart. It starts with individual repentance, but it means changing the world. And that's what Common Grace is about, and that's why it excites me so much as a group. Uh, the kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as in heaven. Faith as small as a mustard seed, and a small group of people transforming the world. Now, Common Grace has four areas of concern in, in terms of justice, climate change and creation care, uh, domestic violence, um, refugee and asylum seeker, justice issues, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's justice issues, because we live on land that's not our own. Um, we are colonisers in that land, and... Um, you can certainly tie a bunch of these issues together. So when Europeans arrived here 250 years ago, they invaded the land, they slaughtered uh, the people and enslaved them and destroyed their land. 
you know, it would be fair to say that Western agriculture has produced quote-unquote mixed results. It's devastated land. Yeah, it's fed people, but it's also devastated land, which is not to say that there aren't careful, thoughtful agriculturists, um, but our animals and our crops have done great damage. Irrigation has selenized this land, topsoil has been lost and so on. While Aboriginal cultural burning has been disrupted and now climate change is a global phenomena and we need the best of Indigenous and Western wisdom and knowledge and, and common grace as a place where that's embodied. And I'll talk more about that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. Now, I know, of course, that it's not like a radio program and there's a short interval, but this gives you a chance to go make a cuppa and pause, if you like. And uh, I, I really love the four seasons, so it's a great opportunity to slot that in. Just before the break, not so long ago, I was talking about um, colonisation and how you can relate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's justice with climate and creation care justice issues and said that common grace really integrates this. Well, we're the first, uh, very proud to say this, we're the very first uh, national Christian organisation that's not simply, uh, or not just focused on um, Indigenous issues to have an Aboriginal CEO. That person is Brooke Prentice, as I mentioned earlier, Waka Waka Woman. So we walk the walk, we talk the talk of conciliation and of listening to Indigenous voices. And common grace has some wonderful um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who I've spent the weekend learning from. And and certainly in the case of, of Aboriginal peoples on, on this these lands we now call, or is now called Australia, there's millennia of wisdom of learning in this place. So for me, it's a very exciting part of my own uh, journey of discovery. Now, Show Your Stripes is not Common Grace's first climate action uh, let me read to you uh, a, a section of um, my book, A Climate of Justice. I like Christmas presents. I enjoy getting them. I also rather like giving them. So in 2015, when the Christian lobby group Common Grace were asking for donations to buy solar panels for Kirribilli House, the Sydney residence of the Prime Minister of Australia, I was tickled by the idea. Prime Minister of the time, Tony Abbott, had declared in 2009 that climate change was crap. His policies on climate change were rather lukewarm, to say the least, repealing the price on carbon that the previous government had instituted and abolishing the Climate Commission. Thankfully, the Climate Commission has risen like a phoenix from the ashes to become the Climate Council, a crowd-funded body. Just recently, the Climate Institute, a climate change-focused think tank and lobby group, uh, is shutting its doors due to lack of funding, amply illustrating the ongoing weak approach to climate change in Australian politics. So it was rather unsurprising when he, that's Tony Abbott, rejected our Christmas present. The excuse was predictably weak and there would be on, that there would be ongoing requirements for cleaning and maintenance of the panels. The Australian Solar Council told Jody Lightfoot of Common Grace that, quote, panels do not require annual cleaning and maintenance, they are cleaned by the rain. Instead, Lightfoot rightly opined that 
Uh, quote, the rejection of the solar panels is symbolic of the government's failure to invest in renewable energy, when 89% of Australians want a stronger renewable energy target. End quote. So it was a delightfully cheeky gift, but at the same time it was a sincere one. We wanted the Prime Minister of the time to do more on climate change, and we still do in the present um, day. Which brings me back to the scarves. Over 300 of them were knitted. That's an amazingly large amount of work when you think about it. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and, you know, and there were first-time knitters, passionate about justice, experienced knitters who knew nothing about climate science and so on. It was just amazing. Now, I had the opportunity to hear some of these stories about the knitters and, and why they knitted. Uh, indeed, when Brooke gifted me mine, as she did with a, a number of us in Common Grace, I was pretty moved to hear the story. A woman whose daughter is a climate activist, uh, this woman's in her 80s, she started knitting something where she didn't even know or understand the signs. She didn't know what the scarf meant. She is on a journey of discovery, and I was really touched by that, that she, you know, in the relationship with her, her daughter, I think it was. Um, she was willing to start knitting this scarf, and they're a decent length, and there's a lot of work involved in them. Uh I heard a number of stories that they were sharing with the politicians they were gifting the scarves to, uh, and really emotional stories of, of people working their way through the data in a, a very tactile and personal way. It's not just like looking at a plot or a graph when you're knitting row after row and each row is a different year and you're thinking about what you might have been doing then. Um, one woman talked about the conversations she had with the children as she was knitting a scarf and they were asking, were they born yet? And when their grandparents were born, when their ancestors were alive, all in the rows of one little scarf. Brooke described it as a song line in, in Aboriginal um, thinking. So I'm just trying to reach the right word, if that's not the right word, I apologize. But you get what I'm saying. So the scarves are significantly more than just scarves. And I'll always treasure mine with a mix of, of joy, sadness, anger, but also hope, I think. So why gift uh, these um, scarves to politicians? Well, I was asked to uh, pray a prayer. Uh, so we had a, a gathering on the lawn. Uh, it wasn't a protest. It wasn't a rally. It was just a gathering. Uh, and a number of politicians came along and Will Stephan um professor at ANU came and spoke and it was it was it was a wonderful turnout uh, and time got ahead of us and I didn't get to pray this prayer but I want to uh, read to you a few lines from the prayer which give you a sense of at least how I interpret or think about why it was that we wanted to gift these scarves to politicians so here's the prayer we know that all authority comes from you that's God and is therefore under you so we pray now for our parliamentarians and senators. We thank you for each and every one of them, for their sense of public duty and the common good, for their experience and their wisdom. We ask you to increase all of these in abundance, particularly wisdom, to face the disruption that climate change brings and to make just decisions for our future. As your people, we stand for truth, the truth of the gospel and the truth that science reveals about your creation. 
We want all our elected officials to acknowledge the truth of climate change woven into each and every one of the beautiful hand-knitted scarves. May they acknowledge this truth in word and in policy. We pray for wisdom, for boldness, for a spirit of innovation and of courage. We pray for clear policy, rapid action and bipartisan support to make us a net zero economy. Change is hard. In the church, we call change repentance. We pray for a spirit of repentance so that we can move forward as a nation into a safer future for ourselves and our children. As I read this, I'm finding all the typos that I would have had to have just smoothed over while reading it out loud. Written, not in a hurry, but uh, one of those things that I, I struggled over for some time. But So uh, the scarves were a gift as a small act of grace. Each scarf came with love attached, not strings. No compulsion to take on our policy suggestions, but a plea to consider so. No lecture, no judgment. It's a piece of genius, and a point of the fact that common grace is about showing grace, changing the heart. It's apolitical. Uh, that is, common grace is apolitical, particularly um, on an issue... What the heck am I saying here when I've written this down? So, it, you know, it's an apolitical act. It's not a statement about politics per se, um, because particularly on an issue where such urgent action is required, every side of politics could no doubt do more. We could move more rapidly to address the issue of climate change. So it wasn't about getting going in there and, and um, putting one party over another. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a phrase think about that you know you either change your government or you change your government if you understand my meaning that's the whole point of, of political engagement now i won't go into the personal details of the meetings that i was involved in but i'm always in, actually impressed by the politicians i've met for a variety of reasons perhaps i've met uh, some smart ones savvy ones people of some integrity even if i might disagree with them in certain details now walking around parliament house was a privilege um we have a democracy and we should treasure it here in these lands now called Australia. It's such a fragile thing and it's worth valuing and protecting. Respectful dialogue is possible. And I think our political um, involvement doesn't end with a vote made every three years. So what kind of policy asks were, were being made? Well, it boils down to dealing with the root cause of climate change and dealing with issues of justice. So you know, we're, we're coming out of COVID slowly. Uh, and we want to build on the back of that a sustainable society. Now, James Hansen has been calling for over a decade to quote-unquote leave it in the ground. If you want to keep under two degrees or one and a half degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, we can't afford to dig up any more fossil fuels. Again, that's not uh, meaning to be political. It's just a statement of the scientific truth that there's, we've already emitted so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that there's not much more of a budget before we drive the system too far. Which means new mines are out, um, new um, fracking of gas and all these things are out. Um, you, know, you know, you don't vote for physics. You establish it by careful research and then you state the results and then you have to make decisions based upon that. But it's uh, pretty much, you know, you, you can fill a glass up, but if you keep filling it further, it eventually it spills out over the edges. Um, 
so inbuilt into our future too, other than cutting emissions to zero, will be some ways of, of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So Paul Hawkins' project Drawdown explores a number of different ways. But the, the more you emit, the more you're reliant on an even more rapid shutdown of emissions and more reliant upon these technologies, um, some more natural than others, like biochar and, and reforestation to extract the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, so, um, yeah, what am I saying here? So, I mean, the, so there's policy involved in this, and the sooner you can get to zero emissions, the better. Uh, many countries around the world now are talking about um, carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, Professor Will Steffen from ANU today said 2035 will make it a much safer climate. And already we're probably past two tipping points. Uh, that is uh, the Arctic sea ice and the West Antarctic ice sheet, which means we're in for some significant sea level rise. And the Amazon rainforest could be next. But Will Stefan encouraged us with, and I think I've mentioned this before in one program, about social tipping points where society can change more or less overnight. And we've seen there's military, um, obviously, um, tipping points, uh, revolutions, there's political uh, transformations, social transformations, the sexual revolution, for example, Um who knows, we might be on the cusp of a social tipping point now where we, we move rapidly down the path of um, an economy that uh, treads more gently on the earth. And who knows, the winsome gentleness of a gift from common grace uh, might be a significant part of that. Now, people look to politicians for leadership, and we often do see it. Uh, but politics is personal, as a friend used to say to me a lot, and grassroots organizations are important in driving this social change which leads me quickly in the last few minutes to some points about justice the climate movement needs to listen to the traditional custodians of the land on which we live and if you're listening in north america that then you've got indigenous voices there as well and i've discussed this already but a, a, a few quick reasons why well firstly um I've had a, a few emails from environmental groups I follow uh, telling me that the black-throated finch is in decline and is threatened by the Adani coal mine. Well, Aboriginal people have been saying this for at least a decade. So there's traditional knowledge and traditional wisdom uh, that we need to listen to. Um, and I think, too, perhaps there's a sense of a worldview adjustment, an attitude adjustment on, on worldview and what do we value more, coal mines or our bird neighbours and a safe climate for that matter. It's also a matter of justice because we've silenced Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples way too long, their knowledge and their beliefs. Uh, it's unjust, it's ignorant, and we do it at our own peril. And thirdly, it's part of a conciliation process. We talk, we learn, and we change. The other point of justice that um, Common Grace stressed was the Green Climate Fund, which is not uh, a um, pot of money to bankroll conferences. Uh, you think about what's happened. Countries like the land we now call Australia have been blessed, quote-unquote, with coal, gas and oil reserves, which we've used in abundance and exported and net result added a lot of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And those that suffer the most the impacts of climate change right now, not just in the future, but right now, are those who have contributed the least. So where do they get the money with their developing economies to adapt to climate change, if not from those nations that have been ahead of the game in terms of their emissions? That seems a fairly Christian uh, suggestion. That's an issue of justice. Um, so apart from political engagement and the climate science, what else did I draw personally from the past two days? 
Well, I met for the first time and reacquainted myself with some amazing people. And I won't name names and embarrass people. Um, I've already name-dropped our CEO enough. Um, But in particular, I met one person. I told them that they were one of the most beautiful and winsome and wisest people I'd ever met. You get struck by people like that and you're just really drawn to them and really uh, impressed by them when you hear them speak uh, with the grace that they show. And, of course, very godly as well. Uh, I was obviously impressed with the hard work and the creativity of the knitters uh, and drawn to the passion uh, for justice um, and Jesus uh, of many that I met. You know, when you're told uh, by someone that the gospel has nothing to do with quote-unquote social justice, which is often meant dismissively and um, or said dismissively and meant disparagingly, to be with your people is a balm for the soul. I think engaging in justice is evangelism in the, the classic, classic Christian sense, proclaiming the truth of the kingdom come. It's an expression of hope for the future and it's a solace too. Uh, for the soul pained by the pain of the world. I'm mightily thankful uh, to God for common grace and its people. So show your stripes day. Find your people, people of any faith or none, people of goodwill. Work with them. No, work for them. Love and serve them and all people for the sake of our neighbour, our human neighbour our land neighbour, our sea neighbour, our sky neighbour, our bird neighbour, our fish neighbour, our mammal neighbour, the creeping thing that creeps on the ground neighbour. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples teach us that all things are our neighbour, and that certainly gels with my reading of the Hebrew Bible through my Masters, which is due in just over a week. Lord help me. And I will take that lesson to my Christian faith and learn to expand my love. So again, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.